This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Cursed Items. The Bay of Pigs. Blind French Organists. And Iridology. You've perfected the dosi dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your meeple dance crew as fast as you can over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people ages six and up in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But, oh, Robin, those, those dice... They're, they're those cool Chessex ones with the red swirl in them. And I think the Doritos, they might be a, a novelty flavor, like, I don't know, ravioli or something. And I, I, I think Peter Frampton is playing like the filler cuts off the second side of the second record. Robin, are we in a cursed installment of the gaming hut? Has beloved Patreon backer Kevin Greenlee cursed us? Well, he hasn't cursed us. I'm sure. Perhaps he has. Perhaps he's looking for our help. No, uh, with a uh, perhaps a player who he wants to give a cursed object to. Is that, is that what's up? Let's see what his question is. That might clear all this up. Uh, Kevin Greenlee, beloved Patreon backer, writes, possibly in cursed runes, when you have set up an item or power as cursed and likely to drive a character down a dark path, but the player clearly wants it for the cool effects. How do you follow through on the telegraphed curse? without it coming across as simply punishing the player and ruining their fun Robin. Do we begin with the premise rejection or save it as the sting in the curse's tail here? Um, I'm ready to accept the, the premise, so uh, I'm interested to, to see how you would reject it. What, what curse would cause you to reject it? What curse would cause... The thing that I reject, premise-wise, is that following through on a telegraphed curse that the player has welcomed... I mean, unless your player is eight years old, I can't imagine uh, that that they would feel that it's a hose. I, I think that they're like, nope, I spent my dark side point. I want force choke. And I well aware that the, there's a very real risk of me being the only compelling character in a trilogy as a result. I uh, drink the vampire blood because I want to climb walls without stupid ropes. I'm totally down with accidentally being much cooler than everyone else in the party. I, I think that People who walk into a cursed situation uh, in order to garner the power are exactly playing out that because they want the curse. They want they may not want to roll the, you know, corruption effect or whatever other thing happens. But I think they've they've signaled already their willingness to play in the line and assuming that your player is has reached the level of emotional maturity that I'm sure 
a beloved Patreon backer Kevin Greenlee's players have. I I don't see the problem. Robin, do you see a problem? I think sometimes false consciousness exists. Even even Ken in role players who want the One Ring or Stormbringer. I think there's lots of players who want to have disadvantages that never kick in and pay for advantages uh, that do kick in all the time. And I think perhaps to reshape this question, perhaps we can just say how to make it uh, the curse of going down a dark path. And let's go parenthetical here is also probably what the player wants, right? It may in fact be that what someone who Mm -hmm. wants a curse object is, is license to uh, go down a dark path and torque over all of the other players uh, by doing bad things, yes. uh, which we will get to in a moment. But l- let us assume for the purposes <laughs> of th- this question that there's someone who's, they want to do a little minimaxing. They want a devil's bargain, uh, but at the end, uh, they want to send uh, the devil back down to Georgia or uh, what have you. They think they can outsmart Stormbringer's desire to uh, eat all of the good souls or that, uh, you know, that you'll be the one person in Middle-earth who uh, is not uh, turned into a Nazgul by using the ring too many times. And so, first of all, the ingredients of a curse are the, uh, mythically speaking, there's the awareness uh, that there's a curse. You have to, uh, you have to make sure that the uh, character actually willingly accepts the curse that they, or at least they're given a warning, um, which you, in order to activate the powers of the thing, they have to uh, ignore the warning. So you get that um, uh, pattern in play. And then I think the answer lies in some sort of a tangibly crunchy uh, a mechanic to allow the player to see their progress along the dark path to doom so that, you know, you turn invisible once and, oh, uh, okay, well, you've got a, a Nazgul pool that's uh, 10 points. And as, and as soon as your Nazgul pool goes down to zero, and of course there's all sorts of mechan- existing mechanics that do this, then that's when the curse takes hold of you. And so uh, if you uh, go invisible right. for a little while... Or rather you're not Nazgul pool. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll workshop the, the name of the pool later. Yeah. Curse pool, whatever it is. Right. Um, and then, uh, so you take an action and, oh, well, turning invisible in this situation, because you then slit a guy's throat, that, that uh, costs you three points. And, uh, oh, well, there's other things maybe you could do to counteract that and, you know, heal back some of those points, like, uh, you know, save a bunch of orphans and stuff. And if you have noticed, dear GM, uh, dear Kevin Greenlee, that this then allows you uh, the power to direct the character's uh, behavior. It's like, wow, I really need someone to want to save this orphanage. Oh, look, look who needs to redeem some uh, some curse points and maybe even there would be some sort of a random effect so that you roll to see uh, how well your orphan saving or get you or how uh, ill your uh, invisible throat slitting gets you so that um, there's an element of uncertainty in whether you will uh, hit zero as a result of any given act and uh, and that gives the player some control something to play with uh, in order to feel that it's not just a binary choice of you know I have Stormbringer, I have Stormbringer, I have Stormbringer, oh, Stormbringer ate my wife, and or Stormbringer ate me. So it's not just everything's fine and then you're hosed, but rather an elegant seesaw back and forth, a push-me-pull-you, uh, as it were, between uh, getting the cool power and getting in uh, deeper and deeper. And that, and that lies within uh, the original question of drive a character down a dark path, right? To go down a dark path implies the ability to stop 
midway down it to even turn around and walk back up it, as you say, um, rather than to simply be teleported from light to darkness at the flip of a switch. Um, and I think you can say something like, you know, a, a helm of alignment reversing or something equally ridiculous. That would be sort of a hose that that would be a, a jerk item. And it's merely there to control the tendencies that sloppy dungeon design have put into the players in the first place. So it shouldn't be that hard to remove all of those sorts of, you know, instantaneous switcheroony things from play. And as you say, many, many games have something like it. The dark side points in original Star Wars, humanity and vampire, uh, to an extent, even sanity and call of Cthulhu, because you get cool powers from reading the books and casting spells. It's just that, Oh, look at that. It corrodes your sanity and makes you, you know, more enthralled to the old ones and, uh, sub- subject to being violently, uh, uh, revealed upon. Right. So the, you know, the, the mechanism I think is, is a fairly established one gaming wise. And I guess the other question is, how do you do it in play? Is the warning just, Oh, I read in a book, this ring is cursed. Well, there we go. Or do you need to have like a, an old wizard say, but that ring is cursed. It is in the dark speech of Mordor, which is only used for curses and occasionally for stereo instructions. Never anything else. That's all they use. But they were cursed stereos. That kind of thing. The the 5.1 was always completely It's a a cursed stereo, yes. You can't get the subwoofer up. It's terrible. And so how much warning do you think is enough warning in a, in a, I mean, in gumshoe, right? You, you, the, the warning is a core clue. So you understand it. Oh, you have a cult. You know that things that glow green in a bottom of a pirate chest are probably cursed. But on the other hand, look how cool it looks. Um, where's the warning at in, in your, uh, panoply, Robin? Yeah. I, I think you absolutely have to have the very clear mythic warning of, you know, the, the don't water the mogway and don't, don't feed them after midnight. You have to have the character who comes on. Uh, and uh, and tells you that you have to know in some way that you are deliberately making a, a devil's bargain. In uh, some F20 games, there's the idea that you have to cast a spell to know whether the thing is cursed or not. And if you don't use identify magic or whatever that spell is called these days or was called, um, then it's on you because you didn't you know waste a spell slot for the last six sessions on this dumb magic identification spell. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. But I think in the premise of this question, the characters, you know, know that they're getting a, a cursed item and know that they're playing with fire. And so uh, it's, it's absolutely that player, if they want the cool powers, you know, make sure that there's uh, that they have a very clear warning. It's like, well, you can turn invisible, but don't turn invisible for very long and make sure you don't kill anybody while you're invisible. And especially, you know, don't, uh, don't sneak up on anybody. You know, if, Maybe if you give them a fair chance, it's not as, you know, there's, there's edge, edge cases in the, but really what I'm, what I'm telling you is don't, don't turn invisible. Right. Yeah. And if you do turn invisible, don't kill anybody. And if you do kill some, oh no, so I'm going down that path again. Just, just don't, don't turn invisible. Even the warning is going down a dark path. That's, that's terrible. That's exactly. And, and in some cases you can play with the lack of player character knowledge. And as again, classic Cthulhu games do where I'm just a simple geologist. I don't know anything about the Necronomicon. I just read it for the pictures. And then you realize, you know, in play later on, oh, that book was terrible and it's revealed to me horrible truths about the world. 
but you, the player, always knew, yeah, it's a Necronomicon. It's bad news. Don't open it. But you have your character do it, even though he was never warned that it's uh, the, the cursed book of the Mad Arab. He, he just opens it up because it has a salient point to make about ancient rocks. And uh, there we go. And, and the, uh, the, the same thing I think happens in, you know, the light side, dark side points in Star Wars. And even to an extent with the humanity and vampire that, you know, because the game literally says in giant letters, you know, beast you are, less beast you become. You get the idea, oh, there's probably some dark path involving me becoming a beast in this game. And what do you bet me biting people's necks out and dancing in their blood is part of that dark path. So <laughs> you don't need to have an in-character you know, good guy who's, you know, a priest who says, oh, being a vampire is bad for your soul, me boy. You actually can just say, well, the players, because they're playing this game of vampire or Call of Cthulhu or or whatever it is. Yeah, they they know that there's curses afoot and are sticking their hand eagerly down into the garbage disposal. Yeah. So I think that the warning applies to things that are, you know, inobvious. So in an F20 world, there's super powerful swords like Excalibur. That sword is uh, relatively responsible, uh, although, uh, you know, he's in favor of authoritarian kingship. But other than that, pretty nice guy, that sword. Stormbringer yeah. over here, he's glowing black and crying out for souls. Maybe you don't need somebody to warn, you know, because really all the warning you need is you touch the sword and, and have a premonition of yourself going down a dark path. And you see a hallucination of you uh, murdering all of your friends. And do you pick up the sword? And there's one player in every group. The sword also says, I'm plus four. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, which I guess brings us, once we mention all of the other player characters being murdered, uh, the other part of this equation, which is as GM, I think the real trick uh, in most cases is to make sure that the disadvantages of the curse don't mainly splash onto the other players while allowing the, uh, the player who has a cursed item to enjoy that time-honored fantasy of, of playing you know, Wolverine or Elric or the other, you know, the, the loose cannon on, on, a, on the highway to hell. Right. So yeah. uh, when there are negative consequences, you make sure that there are in situations where it's not also going to hose everybody else. So the, the time when uh, Stormbringer is, uh, you know, out in the darkness and whistles to the ninjas to uh, attract them to attack you, that's not while the whole party is there. That's while you're on a solo mission or, right. you know, the... Because otherwise, that is the classic problem with disadvantages, is that a clever player uh, can use them to uh, frustrate and annoy the, the rest of the uh, players while remaining uh, within the uh, letter of the rules. And so you have to make sure that the right. ill consequences are uh, tailored to the right moments when it will be genuinely annoying uh, to the player's scheme that they got the big sword or invisible ring in the first place for, rather than just to the detriment of the entire party. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sword, you know, somehow doesn't want to drink the soul of the player character cleric that the other player wants to murder. It wants to drink the soul of the guy who's healing him right now uh, in the in the village, uh, giving him that regrown limb or whatever. And the sword's like, ah, let's get him while his hands are full of goodness. And uh, then, you know, he, he walks around sort of, you know, um, uh, with a half regrown limb and he has to wear an artificial foot because he was... You know, physically twisted like uh, Luke Skywalker by evil. Right. And of course, the other thing about cursed items is there's all, always a Nazgul ready to come around and try and get it back off you, right? There's there's another eternal champion who needs to borrow Stormbringer for the weekend. And so uh, right. there can be yeah, other disadvantages, exactly. even if the player very cleverly skirts 
everything bad about having a cursed item. There's uh, network externalities of bad things that can happen, and you can make sure <laughs> yes, are exactly. therefore also. Yeah. Uh, and th those externalities also apply to uncursed items. That It's the balancer for all magic items that you give the party and then realize, oh, that was way too powerful. That I did not think that combo through. And so all of a sudden, the simple little trinkety ring that you picked up in The Hobbit becomes the one ring of power that everyone is trying to steal from you in the rest of the campaign. Because it turns out having an invisibility ring does indeed hose the game a little bit. So uh, you suddenly have to invent a bunch of Nazgul who are like, no, that's the one ring. Uh, you just uh, thought it was a fun little invisibility ring. And don't you don't you feel all tempted by shadow now? I, I guess the... Um, uh, the, the notion of doing that with a, a good item, you shouldn't necessarily introduce a sudden curse, although you can always, I guess, have someone show up midway through and say, oh, this must not be your 10th death with that dagger. Oh, never mind then, you're fine. Uh, and then, you know, run away and they have to chase him down and get the exposition out of him. Um, and so, uh, you know, something like that. Right. And the fact that Tolkien introduces the the ring is being powerful uh, only, uh, uh, you know, in the Lord of the Rings and not in the Hobbit, I think is probably inspiration for that whole, you have to cast identify magic uh, thing. But anyway, I think we're digressing and we've talked about uh, things going badly. So let's uh, maybe in the next hut, we'll be talking about something that doesn't go badly at all. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th age including the lands of the underworld the underland the kingdoms of the hollow realms and what lies within the deeps the mighty dwarven city of forge the domains of the silver folk elves the threats of malice the drow fort and the four kingdoms of the mechanical sun forgotten gods the gnome academy of magic monsters magic treasure and more for a limited time get 10 percent off in print or pdf at the Pelgrane store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age. Voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgranePress.com. It's time once more to uh, head on into the History Hut, and this time around, we've uh, got stylish early 60s uh, clothing, no stovepipe hats. We've... Uh, uh, well, actually, we may have abandoned hats altogether, uh, thanks to uh, John F. Kennedy. But in addition to uh, his famous uh, effect on uh, fashion of abandoning hats and uh, destroying the men's hat industry. It's uh, not the only thing John F. Kennedy abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because we're going to talk about uh, the Bay of Pigs and how to have it happen in fall of Delta Green. And so, Ken, to remind people or even catch them up if they haven't heard of uh, uh, this uh, famous uh, incident uh, in the early 60s, which uh, 
planted some historical threads that can uh, carry on throughout the rest of your Fall of Delta Green campaign and perhaps even beyond then. So uh, give us the, the 101 in the Bay of Pigs. All right. Uh, the Bay of Pigs was a attempted invasion of Cuba, which landed at the titular Bay of Pigs near the Playa Giron on the southwestern coast of Cuba. It was mounted by Cuban exiles who'd been driven out of the country by Fidel Castro after the Cuban Revolution. Those exiles uh, wanted to overthrow Castro. President Eisenhower wanted to overthrow Castro. He decided that uh, launching an invasion that would link up with anti-Castro guerrillas uh, in the country and uh, create a regime in being that was not Castro, a non-Castro government that the United States could immediately recognize and then uh, ship arms to. And even if Castro, you know, didn't immediately uh, disintegrate in, in the rebellion, it would at least distract him from making trouble for the rest of the world. There was about 1400 troops uh, involved in the initial landing, which seems like a small number to invade a whole country. But uh, the goal was that it would, again, like I say, link up with anti-Castro uh, forces and very rapidly clear out enough space that it could declare a, a, a free state and uh, establish a, a, a legal groundwork for the Americans to intervene in, in giant numbers. It was sort of a, a you know, a, a, a bellwether uh, for an eventual American invasion of Cuba. So all of this is ticking along. The CIA is is in charge. They've got eight bombers ready to to fly in and and, and bomb Cuba. They do so. Uh, the invasion launches, and as the invasion launches, the invasion bogs down a little bit. And Kennedy decides not to send in the air support that was absolutely necessary for the invasion to succeed. That decision basically trapped uh, the Cuban Brigade 2506 is what they're called, but the, the anti-Castro Cubans trapped them on the beach. Uh, they were uh, rounded up and uh, tossed into uh, prison camps and eventually swapped back to America in exchange for basically America buying the Cuban sugar crop and sending some tractors and whatnot. Uh, it, it was it was worked out so that uh, they didn't all get executed, but they did wind up back in America, full of bitterness at President Kennedy, and by extension, I guess, bitterness at uh, anyone that would go half the distance in terms of anti-communist action. Uh, and that uh, had, uh, depending on who you believe, really big payback in, uh, in, in America, and it certainly uh, had big payback in, say, Florida electoral politics, uh, for example. Um, and uh, lots of other cases uh, as well. Right. And and the, the thing at work in this is that Kennedy thought somehow he could keep American fingerprints off of the uh, invasion and that people wouldn't notice that, uh, you know, oh, well, we got pulled in. It wasn't our idea in the first place. Uh, and so the, the invaders expected American air power to show up. And Kennedy decides, talking to a CIA, well, if we didn't do the air power, is this... Is this st still going to work? And apparently he he either was told yes or, or wasn't. That's a big controversy. But the mm -hmm. the expectation of air power and also the fact that the uh, the Cubans are uh, Castro's Cubans are waiting for them because they have an extensive intelligence operation of their own and know exactly what the emigres are up to uh, is what causes the uh, invasion to spectacularly fail. So that's the uh, story. Uh, and uh, does the Bay of Pigs uh, figure? 
into uh, existing Delta Green continuity or the continuity that you added for Fall of Delta Green. It does, in fact. And it does that because when I was in Florida, I went to the Bay of Pigs Museum that they have there uh, that was established by the uh, exiles after they returned. And I noticed on the map that the original landing spot, which was much closer to the city of Trinidad and also much closer to the anti-Castro uh, guerrillas operating in the Ascombray Mountains, um, was called Casilda Bay, with only one S, but still uh, pretty close, right? And I thought, well, that's the spot that Kennedy moves the invasion from, is Casilda. That has to have something going on in uh, the Delta Green world. So I came up with something that I, I tied it into a previously existing bit of Delta Green War, which was something called the Outlook Group, which had a uh, weirdly accurate predictive algorithm, which might or might not have been magic. Uh, possibly the Yithians could be uh, any number of other things. And uh, the Outlook Group in, in the original Delta Green fiction predicted success at the Bay of Pigs and then was discovered to be not correct. And the outlook group was later basically, you know, domestically executed by the CIA and taken over as a CIA think tank in the Delta green universe. In my edition, I said, well, the reason that the outlook group predicted success is they said, you can make the landing at Casilda Bay and nothing will go wrong. And someone in Delta Green says, that name rings a bell. And they investigate the Outlook group ahead of yeah, time. I remember Casilda. She was weird. We didn't like her. Yeah, right. She and they discovered us. that landing at Casilda Bay in some fashion uh, would be hypergeometrically unwise. And so it's Delta Green that gets the operation moved to uh, the Bay of Pigs and therefore uh, obliterated because uh, the Bay of Pigs is far away from the revolutionaries that they're trying to link up with. So the thing there, and I guess this is the extrapolatable bit for everybody, is you find a decision that seems perniciously dumb uh, made by the U.S. government in the 1960s. And uh, thank God there's a couple of those, Robin. <laughs> seems unlikely, but continue. And you can work out and say, was there a, a, a magical reason that this decision might have been shifted or changed? Is there something going on in this bureaucratic turmoil that Delta Green could have stuck their oar into? And when you discover Casilda Bay uh, in Trinidad, Cuba, you discover that, um, yeah, there's there's something magic going on. Uh, and that was that, that was just a lucky coincidence of me looking at the map very carefully in the uh, Bay of Pigs Museum. So pretty fun there. Um, now the uh, now we get to the bit of making this an actual scenario that the player characters uh, get into. Here in Casilda Bay and knowing that uh, the king in yellow and uh, his uh, his family and his court are into reality shifts, uh, it could well be that you uh, participate in the original invasion that takes place in Casilda Bay and you win and there are airstrikes and you uh, dispatch Castro and then history unfolds uh, in a direction that uh, much like uh, time travelers uh, sometimes run into uh, where things go horribly wrong and you discover, oh no, we need, without Castro, uh, Zathagua actually rises in the Caribbean and uh, we have no way to put him back and, oh no, this is, this is the wrong future. So, uh, you could have your old sort of, uh, uh, whether it's uh, actually Groundhog Day, where you have to keep trying and trying and trying to cause the 
a known disaster of the Bay of Pigs and things keep going right for the emigres and you have to keep stopping them from going right and you get killed at a certain point and have to start over. That uh, uh, seems like an unexpected uh, scenario for Bay of Pigs. What would you do with it? Um, I think another thing you could do is have the original Bay of Pigs landing happen. Uh, it's successful. Castro is driven out. He's replaced by, you know, some democratic figurehead or what the hell with a, by a real democracy. But the lesson that the CIA has taken away from this is, oh, we know in our secret CIA uh, cabal, our, our secret CIA uh, group, that um, the reason it was successful was because of this king in yellow. And he had this, you know, cool operative of, of uh, people that undermined Castro's. Uh, power, and we're going to bring him in uh, to America, just like uh, the CIA really brought in Cuban experts as, as pilots and um, uh, deniable technicians for, you know, mercenary contracts or for other jobs around the world and possibly in America. The CIA weaponizes uh, the, the yellow mythos. They, they either make a straight up deal with Casilda herself or they in otherwise are corrupted by the, 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 the Hastur, uh, uh, mythos, the yellow, uh, mythos. And Delta Green's job is suddenly much harder because now every branch of the CIA is, is a mythos conspiracy and you have to undo the CIA. And maybe the solution is indeed, as you say, to time travel back to uh, the Bay of Pigs and uh, make it all go wrong. And you can certainly do that with the various Nazi time machines that are being tested by Majestic um, out in Wyoming. Or you could, you know, do it with uh, Yithian time gates or some other uh, mechanism that you come up with uh, magically. Uh, or maybe it's just a somewhat alternate campaign in which you take the sort of um, uh, Oliver Stone level portrait of the CIA and you say, oh, this is why they're implacably evil. Is there actually... Uh, controlled by uh, Hastur and uh, the King in Yellow. And so we now have to root them out somehow, destroy the CIA. You have to do your own sort of ad hoc explosive laden church committee, basically. And uh, and then you, you just find all the things that the CIA legitimately did that were awful and then all the things that people have fantasized that they did that were awful and make them all true and even worse. And so MK Ultra becomes, you know, it, when the King in Yellow takes it over, it, it stops just being good fun with uh, LSD and high windows and becomes a a real genuine mind control system. And so there's all manner of of Carcosan candidates, you know, sleeper agents walking around uh, doing uh, the, the the bidding of, of Hastor and, and, and bad stuff is going down. I, I think that's a fun thing to do. It, it sort of changes your whole campaign as, as much as you'd like it. But that, I guess, is the whole point of one mission going wrong in Delta Green world. Right. And if we have a big reality shift that changes the timeline, uh, we also have to account for uh, what the other half of the equation arranging uh, for uh, to participate in uh, Bay of Pigs and then later covert operations. And that is the mob, because, of course, uh, Santo Traficante uh, wanted uh, back all of the uh, gambling empire that he and uh, Meyer Lansky and others had established uh, in Havana at the time. And so this yellow kingized uh, alternate history can, uh, you know, Havana can go back to being the uh, the sort of the, the, the Berlin of the Car Caribbean and uh, uh, the place where all of the intrigue happens and uh, there are all of the different factions. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a wonderland of uh, covert ops and uh, mob individuals and the the idea that a uh, a benign uh, democratic uh, government would be reestablished, I think, would be heavily challenged by the people who want to go back to being 
as corrupt as it was under uh, Batista. And those people have, have guns and might want to shoot you. And, uh, yeah, and yes. uh, what, who knows? One can uh, be benign and democratic and corrupt, Robin. This is this is you know, think bigger. <laughs> but I think that you you can also uh, because you're doing all of this reality shifting and whatnot, and you and you and if you establish Havana as the centerpiece, the center point of uh, of yellow influence, I think that's a great place to start. You know, slipping your over the edge elements in, and as reality begins to degrade in Havana, other. Uh, colonist species, your, your Kergillians, your, your conspiracies that have been practicing things to discover, oh, our magic works in Havana. Let's all go. And so suddenly it's not just a place for, for Meyer Lansky and Frank Sinatra at a party. It's also a place for every would be, uh, magician, interdimensional lobster, whatever it happens to be to sort of, uh, accrete and Havana just gets stranger and stranger and stranger in the way that, you know, um, uh, in our history, San Francisco did, but, uh, with a, a less summer of love tinge and more of a summer of despair tinge. And unlike a, a straight up time shift, a reality shift can go in and out like a, a, a radio station that, uh, you occasionally can receive and not. And so sometimes, most of the time, uh, you are in, uh, the regular, world, but sometimes you can go to Interzone Havana. You can go to the, the William Burroughs, uh, Jerry Cornelius, Michael Moorcock Havana, where it's, oh, no, I've woken up on the on the wrong side of reality this morning. And it may be something where you can figure out how to go there and get out. So it's like, well, we could really use some uh, Kurgillian ichor for this problem in reality A. And I guess we can do a quick op into reality Y. Uh, so that it then becomes uh, sort of a, uh, a dreamlands-like uh, secondary world that you can uh, pop into and pop out of. But uh, like with cursed items, you can pop in only so many times before it begins to completely overwrite uh, the reality you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and again, you might come to prefer the one where uh, JFK is not assassinated and has a, you know, maybe except for this weird island, everything is kind of okay in this other world, but... I don't know. I still have a bad feeling about that. And so that uh, the and, you know, how reliable is your intelligence if you're not sure what reality uh, the report was written in? Yeah. And the and the other thing is it can if there is a, a, a Havana inner zone, it absolutely makes sense that the CIA would be infiltrating people into it as a way of putting them into regular Havana once the reality shifts over. So. Uh, the notion of interzone attempting uh, or the CIA attempting to weaponize or strategically control interzone means that the CIA might even be enforcing the, the, the weirder elements of reality. And so you might think, well, we should clear out these Karagillians, uh, because they're interdimensional lobsters. And as a Delta green agent, we know that's bad, but the CIA is like, nope, they're an important part of keeping interzone weird. So. Uh, they're protected by the CIA and will kill you if you hassle the Karagillians too much. And so you have a at least a three-handed game going on and probably more as more and more uh, people, you know, the some crazy uh, Air Force, you know, Curtis LeMay says, what if we flew a bomber into Havana inner zone and then out again over the Soviet missile silos? Wouldn't that be easy and fun? Can we can we launch an atomic strike, you know, through the inner zone and hit 
Castro? Is that a thing? And uh, you can imagine all manner. I mean, you think the the alternate Bay of Pigs was fun. The alternate Cuban Missile Crisis, where the missiles may or may not be there, uh, that'll be great, right? Yeah, you're in the bomber, and, and now the mugwumps have shown up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when mugwumps show, show up, because they're, they're bad news indeed, it's time for us to flee uh, to another segment. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Stave off the curse of underfunding by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Jeff F. Lee Candelino. Andrew Laliberti. Ben Brigoff. And Grace. St. Quentin. The proscenium arch, the titled duchesses in lorgnettes, the plates of crudités scattered about welcome us once more to the delicate, beautiful confines of the culture hut, which is rattled by an organ chord, Robin. Because an organ chord. Beloved, beloved Patreon backer Noel Warford uh, as though he cares about us, asks the extremely <laughs> on-brand question, why are there so many famous blind French organists? And I don't know if he pointed this out or you pointed this out, but if you go to uh, Wikipedia and look up blind well, this musicians. Is Noel pointing this, this is Noel pointing this right. out. If you go to uh, Wikipedia and look up blind musicians, there's a whole category for blind organists. And those organists include Louis Vierne, André Marchal, Gaston Littes, uh, Jean Langlais, and the current organist, one of the current organists at Notre Dame, Jean-Pierre Leguay. And I note, as I looked into these blind organists, that almost all of them were either blind from birth or became blind at a very young age, like two. And so the theory that I have is that I mean, again, I mean, I, I have all of my eyes and I can't play piano or keyboards of any kind, but I imagine that the act of playing keyboards does not require a huge component of your sight because it's all tactile, right? You, where do you put your foot? Yeah. Where do you put your hands? Uh, you know, as long as you're, you know, sitting at the keyboard, sight does not come into it, except of course in reading music. And if you have, the kind of musical memory that would make you a great organist sighted or otherwise, you don't necessarily need to read the music because you remember and, and you know that, you know, that key is a sharp and that key is F flat and 
you bang them all together and suddenly boom, Takata and Fugue coming out. And right. uh, what a lovely thing, right? Yeah, because because this is the the broader fun ruiner answer, which of course yeah. we have to start with, which is that uh, being a extremely skilled musician is something that uh, you can do without sight. And it's the same reason why there were so many uh, blind uh, blues performers in the U.S., particularly in the early phases uh, and before there's any sort of a social safety net and uh, people without sight have to make a living. A lot of them found that making music was one of the ways to do that. And uh, because a lot of people did that, uh, there were enough of them that enough of them became uh, accomplished and are, are remembered today, whether they're blues musicians or in this case, uh, organists. Before we proceed, I have to break Noel's heart a little bit and, and uh, admit that my classical music appreciation uh, there's a wall around organ music. What? <laughs> the kind of organ I want to hear is a B3 Hammond, uh, not one of these. And just like, uh, just like a leader and art, art song can go take a hike. As far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm not someone who's going to listen to the uh, uh, works uh, performed on an organ. And so a lot of these organists were also composers as well, but they are all composers that I am unfamiliar with because they work in the rather specialized a later field. I mean, Bach, of course, you know, yeah. the further back you go, everybody composed for the organ. But mm-hmm. then after that, after the piano came along, organ uh, composition kind of went off in its own separate stream and uh, people were writing things that I, I am not listening to. Also, so, also, I think once they started perfecting stops and, and different pedals, uh, I think organ technology also changed right around that same time. And, you know, what we think of as the organ is only about as old as the piano. Uh, there's older organs, but they don't have the same qualities and uh, abilities to produce music that, that a modern-day church organ does. Right. And you don't need an entire uh, house-sized structure to fit a piano in. Right. So th- that's the fun-ruining uh, bit and the heartbreaking bit for Noel. So let's add the, the Ken and Robin bit, which is what can we do uh, to explain in, uh, let's say, the uh, world of the Yellow King and the uh, Yellow King Paris, uh, what could be going on with this that is uh, more interesting than the fun Rooney answer. And the easy low-hanging fruit is uh, largely unavailable here because in a development that makes entire sense, people who live and work uh, their entire careers uh, within uh, the confines of being employed by uh, churches, they mostly had uh, sort of constrained non-weird, uh, non-paranormal uh, lives. There's none of this always <laughs> secretly a Rosicrucian uh, there's very little of that going on. And, and some of them, like uh, uh, Vierne, uh, had physical challenges that were, that were uh, that's enough for their handle. So uh, there's not a lot of, you know, partying with Sarah Bernhard or uh, doing late night experiments. Yeah, with they're, they're, These they're, guys they're, were, they're not very well paid and they're paid by a very conservative church organization, which keeps both the orgiasms and the heresies to a limit, I assume. Right. So they're, they're in their lane. Uh, so we're really going to have to make up stuff in order to make up anything of interest here. Um, the closest you get is at uh, St. Sulpice, the uh, church, the cathedral that Vierne uh, was assistant to Vidor at, uh, has a gnomon, uh, which is a uh, an obelisk, fancy uh, sundial thing. And in the Dan Browniverse, it is a pagan and or Egyptian object of Dan Brownie mystical significance. But... I don't know how much uh, paranormalism we can wring out of that, especially if we're trying to bring sightless organists into it. Of course, in the Court of the Dragon, prominently features a sinister organist who 
uh, may be entirely hallucinated or have a hallucination projected onto the regular organist by the uh, protagonist of that uh, story. That, of course, is one of the four Robert W. Chambers uh, Yellow King stories. The Church of St. Barnabé, which he mentions uh, in real life is the Church of St. Rock, which uh, was a is a small church in Paris, but even a small church it's going to have lots of people associated with it. So uh, Diderot was in the congregation there. Uh, the Marquis de Sade was married in that church at one point. And Chopin was their uh, organist for a while. So that has some historical significance. But I think this brings us to the interest that the King in Yellow has in organists and organ playing. And obviously, this is a way that he can project uh, sinister Carcosan figures into our world, especially for unfortunates who have foolishly read The King in Yellow. And so obviously a squad is needed of organists who will be in some way impervious to the influence of Carcosa. And since the play is only read, it is never uh, performed, someone who will never be tempted to read the play because there's no uh, braille version of it is the ideal sentinel for an anti-Carcosan forces to place in strategic points in Paris. So it, and who better uh, than the uh, than the church to fight back against the corrosive reality altering horror of Carcosa. So they may be unwitting or more interestingly uh, witting counter figures uh, that you can encounter. And uh, if you uh, if the player characters run into a, a visually impaired or or, or blind organist, uh, they know that oh well they're positioned there to prevent someone much worse from taking over uh, their job and uh, that means that they have uh, some perhaps connection to an anti-Carcosan force who can help you, but they themselves can't uh, step in because they've got a service to perform uh, this morning or they're working on a composition and uh, they will uh, can perhaps guide you as, uh, as field agents to other attempts of Carcosa to infiltrate uh, through the city's uh, churches and cathedrals, uh, perhaps by uh, moving out of the paintings on the walls because... Of course, uh, there's uh, lots of Delacroix paintings in, in Saint-Sulpice, and uh, you uh, definitely don't want uh, anything coming through those paintings and, and coming at you. But if, if you have uh, the use of your sight, you may be much more vulnerable to the strange reality-shifting uh, effects uh, that can take place in. Uh, and uh, perhaps the cathedrals of Paris are a danger point just simply because architecturally they mimic the spires of the city of Carcosa. They resemble uh, the, the court of the king and uh, through sort of sympathetic harmonic magic, he's trying to turn one of them uh, into uh, his court and manifest it in the middle of the city. And I will point out that a salsa piece is part not, uh, I mean, you say it's part of the Dan Browniverse, which means, of course, that it was originally part of the Gerard de Sedeverse, uh, Gerard de Sed being the surrealist poet and nihilist who was, uh, hired to make up the original Priere de Sion documents as a joke, uh, that became the basis of, uh, all of this Holy Blood, Holy Grail fun. And de Sed got it from, uh, Uismans, because Sansulpice is the scene of satanic doings in La Basse. And it's from that Huismans, uh, quote unquote, revelation that Sansulpice has, has got its, its reputation now. But of course, in the Carcosa verse, 
all of this might be true. And you could even say that the secret anti-Karakosan group is the um, uh, the Society of Sans-Sulpice, which was set up by the man who built the church. The church has some sort of sacred architecture that the um, the music of Vidor being completely about order and control is uh, a necessary anti-Karakosan barricade that has been established. And that uh, the the reason that the Satanists and uh, Templars and whoever else are after Sans-Sulpice all the time is because they're all arms on the Carcosan conspiracy. And the notion that Sans-Sulpice is, is, is magic, uh, like I say, goes, goes back to that. But you can dig around in uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail and find lots of other secrets. Famously, the Abbe uh, Berenger Saunier, who built uh, Rennes-le-Chateau, uh, the, the, the crazy church there, did so after a midnight trip to Saint-Sulpice, possibly coming away with some sort of Carcosan wisdom that had been uh, buried in uh, a crypt there. Uh, so, you, so you can have, you can tie this into uh, not just the placid and ignorant Dan Brown-averse, but into the more exciting Bejant and Lincoln-averse of Templar uh, conspiracies and whatnot. And, and once you've got the Templars in, basically, Bob's your uncle. And the, the organists v. Templars battle, uh, it, it's a tale as old as time, Robin, really. Yes. And, and then once we finally get around to the, the Templars, clearly that's the point where all of our segments threaten to collapse into all of our other segments. So we better get out of here while all, all of our huts remain structurally sound. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to enter that most mysterious of huts, the hut where the magical is sort of over there and the uh, scientific is kind of over there. And in the middle is kind of our current century, but there's also weirdness. But the conspiracy is a different corner over possibly part of this hut. But I'm just not sure where we are. Oh, wait a minute. There's the uh, Nordic alien and the gray alien. They're drinking a kombucha, making fun of the reptoids, looking out the window. There's the alien big cat. Out screaming on the moor, so we must be within the uh, comforting walls of the Liptony hut. And this time around, uh, stalwart Patreon backer Brian uh, Ken wants to know about one of the one of them their pseudosciences, and that uh, pseudoscience in this case would be iridology, uh, which is all about finding truth in the irises of uh, one's eyes, or possibly the eyes of uh, other people that you might care to examine. So, Ken, uh, where do we start with iridology? Well, I mean, to begin with, we start with a sense of grave disappointment. Iridology 
is a medical pseudoscience, not a magical pseudoscience. And that breaks my heart because medical pseudoscience is the boring kind. It's like, uh, you can look in someone's eye and tell if they've got liver damage. And also the irresponsible kind. Yes. It's also, yeah, it also leads to genuine harm because if some quack is looking in your eye and saying, oh, this spot on the lower left part of your right iris says you've got cancer, you've gone through all manner of, of hellish trauma or worse yet, they look at your spot and they say, nope, you're cancer free. And it turns out you did have cancer. That would be even worse. So it's, so it's, it's both boring and bad. Uh, and, and that's the way medical pseudoscience works. It was created basically by a guy named Ignaz von Pechschelli, who was a Hungarian <laughs> physician. And as a physician, he noticed that a man who had a broken leg had the similar discolorations in his eye as the discolorations in the eye of his pet owl, uh, whose leg had been broken. And when Von Pechschelli was a little boy, <laughs> he found this owl with a broken leg. He set its leg. It became his beloved companion. This is a great story until he becomes a quack, uh, which he does apparently upon noticing this man's weirdly significant eye blot. And uh, the eye blot that he noticed. Well, we're going to need that owl later when we start to make this interesting. Yeah. So the um, uh, uh, his brother, uh, which is or no, I'm sorry, his nephew, August von Pechschli, by the way, in what I have to believe is the most baller move ever associated with iridology, went to the International Iridological Congress, the first international Iridological Congress. And everyone's like, oh, he's the nephew of the great Ignatch. What wisdom will he have? And he steps up and he says, that story is baloney. My uncle never had an owl, or if he did, he just made up the part about its eye. Iridology is bunkum. You all are just rubes and walked out. And it's, yes, strong props to August von Pechschli. Mary Trump of Iridology. But anyway, um, uh, who no doubt turned out to be a Hungarian fascist or something, but I, I've got other things to do. And so it moves from... Actually, to a guy named Nils Liljequist, he's a Swedish fellow. He has lymphatic problems, and his memoirs say that he he wanted to stay far away from homeopathy, which he knew to be crank nonsense. But as doctors <laughs> could do nothing for him, he discovered that homeopathy was wonderful. And furthermore, the key to making homeopathy work was knowing what your irises looked like. And he published an eye atlas. Uh, the diagnosis of the eye in 1893. And there's a, a German guy, Emanuel Felke, who was, uh, goes right up into the, the sort of classic Cthulhu era. He's running his clinic in, in the uh, teens and twenties. And he adds to uh, homeopathy and iris signs, natural healing. So the, the list goes on and on. And then an American chiropractor, because we haven't got all the nonsense sciences in yet, became a giant iridological uh, maven in America, a guy named Bernard Jensen. And he uh, basically established it as an ongoing American pseudoscience in the 1950s. And even now you can find iridology clinics in, in big cities. You can find people who practice it. They look at, you know, uh, little spots and, and discolorations and whatnot in your iris. And they say, well, if it's over on the left side of your eye, that means it's over on the left side of your body. So that's probably like your liver. If it's on the right side, that's probably your spleen. And uh, they have like little charts that they look at and they take big close-up photographs of your eye and they wear a, a, a headband with a giant magnifying glass on it. And uh, basically, it couldn't be 
more ridiculous. Uh, the, the left right bit goes all the way back to the 17th century, by the way, because there's a fellow, uh, named Philippus Mayan or Philip von May. He's got a lot of different names. Uh, he's from Coburg and he wrote a book called Chiromatica Medica, which is mostly a book about palmistry, Robin, but not, not the sort of mystical palmistry. This is medical palmistry, as you can tell by the word medica right in there. Yes. But in addition to coming up with Palmistry and physiognomy, all for medical purposes. He takes a little time out to say, well, if someone's left eye is messed up, probably the left side of their body, just the way science works. Fluids rise up from the bottom. You got something wrong with the bottom of your eyes, probably something wrong with your bowels. Oh, something wrong with the top of your eyes, probably something wrong with your brain. I'm Philip Mayan. I don't know how to spell my name, and I'm out. <laughs> so this beautiful bolus of ridiculous is made, uh, the, the nail is, is drove into it because the iris, it turns out, Robin, is, is better than a fingerprint. It never changes. It's basically there from birth. All of your little bips and blops and color bobs and whatnots, barring actual physical injury to your eye, pretty much stay the same. So not only does it not change and shift depending on whether or not you've got the croup or guitar, uh, it also doesn't change and shift regarding anything. And uh, there have been a number of double blind studies because apparently the medical establishment is super mad at iridologists. And so they've done something like 30 or 40 various double blind studies, some of them involving professional iridologists. Just because people aren't going to listen to proof doesn't mean you don't need the proof. Right. No, I'm I mean, I'm down with doing it as long as you're doing a double blind study. Why not? But but they have consistently been worse than random chance. At determining, for example, they had a one group of people who had a broken arm and one group of people who did not have a broken arm. And they said, tell which eyes are which. And worse than random chance at it, they were actively bad at finding broken arm people by looking at their eye. And so it's as if there's no connection between those two things, Ken. <laughs> it's as though, I mean, people aren't owls, Robin. I mean, that's just science. That is science. <laughs> and, and so if, if there is a, a more thoroughly debunked and more thoroughly tiresome uh, medical pseudoscience than iridology. Well, I'm sure there's a more tiresome one, homeopathy, but th- at least homeopathy, you can, you can start going alchemical directions. This is literally just looking at an eye chart and saying, Oh, yeah, uh, your Achilles tendon is in a bad shape. I, I can see that you have tendonitis from your eye. It's just lurid, just bad, not even lurid. It's just bad. Well, at the risk of, of, uh, going back to a theme we've already explored this episode, if there's one thing, uh, that is going to change the configuration of your eye, which is otherwise uh, static through life, it is going to be a reality shift. And uh, the fact that uh, the uh, original iridologist is uh, uh, going on in the 1890s, I think is a big tip-off to the fact that uh, what uh, people are really looking for under the cover of doing a medical diagnosis is they're looking for signs of the yellow sign in uh, your iris and uh, that the degree of uh, exposure to a carcosin energy can be seen in your iris. And eventually, you know, the, the, the pupil itself may actually alter and shift into the yellow sign itself. And that's when you know that you're, you've gone full carcosin uh, because otherwise it seems very strange in this story. Cause otherwise it would just mean that uh, there's a boundless appetite for a, uh, uh, foolish nonsense which can't be the case uh that he goes no. from one guy people are inherently good and logical robin right to there being an entire symposium worth of people to go and tell them that this is stupid and there's no owl that you know the spread of iridology mm-hmm. there's there's got to be something else going on there and 
at some point, clearly there's a confrontation with Carcosa. And, and after that, there's the, a, a new generation of iridologists who have no idea what it was all about. And they actually just buy the cover story and they follow the, the eye atlas and they think it really works. But the eye atlas was just an excuse to get to look very close at a whole bunch of different people's eyes. And because uh, this is an investigation that is being undertaken, presumably by people other than the PCs, uh, they must be looking for Carcosan influenced people, not for benign purposes, because otherwise they would be doing the adventurer's investigator's job for them, uh, but rather some uh, group that is looking to gather people who are susceptible to uh, Carcosa, just the way that a, a mentalist uh, needs a certain number of people in the audience of a show to know that they can find 10 or so people who are trans susceptible. Uh, and so uh, they are making a catalog of people who are Carcosan susceptible and then either deliberately introducing them to Carcosa or uh, waiting for the manifestations to uh, lock in so that they can somehow use them for their own purposes. And perhaps this is even the proto beginnings of the Castain regime, right? That they uh, are looking for a particular group of conspirators to uh, introduce the yellow sign to so that they can use them to uh, take over America. And the fact that iridology becomes an American discipline after a while, uh, I think reflects the, uh, the, the sort of uh, after image effect of the great iridology uh, operation of the uh, turn of the century and the uh, subsequent decades. Yeah, I, the, the, one of the really annoying things about iridology is the way that it just threads the needle between so many more interesting types of crazy. For example, and this is just free advice for any new age uh, practitioners out there who want to uh, bilk people. Don't bilk people medically. That's wrong. Bilk them the way that ordinary fortune tellers bilk them. Read people's future in their eye. The eye never changes. It's like the palm print. Oh, if only there was something about reading. Oh, there is. It's called chiromancy. And this jerk Philip Mayan gets it literally backwards. He could have invented a crazy new occult science. And instead, he just invents dumb medical pseudoscience. But no one, as far as I know, looks into your eyes and reads your future. This could happen. Also, the other thing that's going on, where is photographing the 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 eye to see the last thing the eye saw in all of this that's that's great stuff and i feel like all these photographings of the eye like you say they're looking for carcosan uh symbolism but it's not even that their eye shifts because of reality although that would be great and that could be like you know that's how you find the quizats hotterock is the guy whose eyes are actually shifting but if someone has seen a carcosan thing and you photograph it with the right array of colors and lenses you can take little pictures of Carcosa in people's eye. And because you're seeing it at one remove, people think you can get the Carcosan wisdom by studying its ratios and lines without the danger of looking at real Carcosa, which of course is wrong. But the notion is you're seeing it at a stepped down uh, remove. So the, the Carcosan reality or the, the things that people have seen are gathered in like a secret filing cabinet you know, where there's a bunch of negatives of, of, of weird Carcosan architecture. And even the Atlas of the Eye might have a secret 13th plate that says, you know, uh, on the influence of yellow on the eye. And then you look for the, the 1893 volume with a special 13th plate. And that's the one that guides you to finding Carcosan eye stuff. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, you're, you're looking at people's eyes with a giant magnifier. You're taking pictures of them. You, you ought to be taking pictures of their, of, of their retina to find out. The last thing they saw, Robin, this just seems like a missed opportunity for everybody. Right. And and the sign that uh, the uh, medical iridology is just the uh, front 
for uh, supernatural iridology is is the owls, right? That the, uh, yeah. the, the, the having an owl involved is always a tip off. Uh, we've covered the owl symbology uh, and its role in conspiracies uh, before. And so uh, your group that is organizing this could well be, I don't know, let's say the order of the owl. And uh, they may be attempting to uh, catalog people according uh, to their uh, susceptibility to Carcosa, because, of course, that enables them to uh, achieve power in the world, uh, to access the sort of malign influence and uh, leverage it in order to uh, uh, rise in various hierarchies. So it may well be that uh, in both the uh, aftermath setting, uh, where explicitly the uh, forces of Carcosa manipulated politics, that even when you get to this is normal now in the ordinary uh, modern day, uh, you may find that uh, some of the people uh, who you encountered previously uh, still have the yellow sign in the in the irises of their eyes, and maybe you can look uh, deep into their pupils and fall into the lake of Holly. And uh, I think on that note, uh, before we all go rushing to the mirrors to see what hideous uh, signs of supernatural influence are uh, waiting for us in our very own eyes, it's time for us to uh, bunk out of this episode, but wait in eager anticipation for another one a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep the death of this podcast from clouding our irises by joining such insightful backers as... Jeff Cars. Jean-Francois Parody. Robbie Carlton. Ruth Tillman. And Steve Sigety. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate the bookhound in your life with our latest design, Three Points in Library Use. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>